There's a saying from 18th century Scotland that goes, Today is Friday and the witch won't hear me on land or sea. Because there was a belief that witches could not hear you talk about them on a Friday. And maybe that's where the phrase, thank God it's Friday, comes from. But the Scottish folk belief that runs along with that is that although the witches couldn't hear you on a Friday, the good folk, the fairies, could hear you all the more keenly on a Friday. So you still had to watch what you said, or who you were talking about. Welcome to the Scottish Folk Podcast, and this episode is all about fairies, the good folk. Now there's quite a lot of ground to cover when it comes to talking about Scottish fairies in folk tradition and folklore and folk belief. The first thing, really, that it's most important to say is that Scottish fairies are not like Tinkerbell. They're not like your cartoon fairies. In Scottish folk tradition and folk belief, fairies are associated with the dead and the underworld. And because of that, any kind of interaction with them is uh, supposed to be undertaken with a great deal of care (laughs) and caution. And also because of this belief, the stories about fairies revolve around fairy knolls or fairy hills, and they can be quite specific in the stories. And that's because those hills actually exist, but they are burial cairns. So, you can see already that the idea of fairies coming out of the burial cairns as a kind of spirit with who knows what kind of personality um, and that could maybe tempt you down into that underworld, into that burial cairn, might have to be treated with a bit of caution. So, let's get to it. They say that on the Isle of Arran there is a fairy meadow where wildflowers grow in all colours among the tall, soft grasses. And if you visit it, you'll be tempted to linger and pick the flowers and run your fingers through the grassy, feathery tops. But if you stay too long, you'll start to recognise the sound each stem makes in the wind and the song of the bird each plant hears and grows to. And then you'll hear the western wind rushing through the grasses and flowers and by then it'll be too late to leave because on that wind ride the great multitude, the she, and your soul will fly out of your body with your breath to join them, rushing over land and sea to where I can't tell you. So linger not in uncanny places and be careful whose flowers you pick. In the northeast of Scotland, a whirlwind that picks up dust on the road was traditionally called a furla fairy wind. A furla fairy wind. And there are lots of other cultures and countries that share this belief that supernatural beings or entities or spirits can travel on the wind. And this includes Greece, Breton, Germany, Slovenia, Estonia, East Africa, South Africa, Egypt, China, Japan and New Zealand, just off the top of my head. Now, all of these countries I've just mentioned have traditional folklore around spirits 
uh, sometimes evil, sometimes not, travelling on the wind. So we're not alone. It's interesting that we have this connection with all these other cultures. There must be something in it. Maybe. Here's a 17th century Scottish proverb, translated from the Gaelic, which talks about this folk belief that fairies and spirits travel on the wind. Shut the north window, and then quickly close the window to the south, and then shut the window facing west. Evil never came from the east. And here's something you maybe didn't know, but a lot of academics debate how big fairies are. <laughs> Seems like a good way to use your funding, doesn't it? A lot of Scottish fairies in the traditional stories Talk about fairies being basically the same size as a normal human being. Or sometimes they're the size of a child. Or sometimes they're like, you know, smaller than uh, your finger. It can vary. And it depends on the area that the story is from, the storyteller who's telling it, and all sorts of things like that. So, academics, no wonder, start debating about, you know, who came first? Which size of fairy was first? You know, if it was the normal sized ones, if it was the little ones, what was it? And I don't think there's a really clear answer about it. It just seems to be that these uh, good folk, these fairies in the stories, can take on whatever form they want, and that's okay. And the other thing we need to know about them is that they can be so small and so tiny that they can travel on the western wind. And it is a belief throughout Scotland for centuries that the fairies travel on the western wind. And particularly in little whirlwinds that pick up dust on the road. If you see one of them, that's supposed to be a fairy whirl. And it also means that you have to be cautious about when you've got your windows open and things. Here's a wee story from Aran, and it's quite short, but it's just a little warning about uh, such things. As well as being all kinds of sizes, Scottish fairies can be all kinds of shapes as well, and all kinds of colours. So one of the more intriguing types of Scottish fairy is uh, the Blue Men of the Minch, which is supposed to be some kind of supernatural fairy creature which attacks ships and... Here's a wee poem about them. When the tide is at the turning and the wind is fast asleep and not a wave is curling round the wide blue deep where the waters will be churning in the stream that never smiles where the blue men are splashing round the sheant isles and as the summer wind goes droning o'er the sunbright seas, and the minches all a dazzle to the Hebrides, they will skim along like salmon, you can see their shoulders gleam, and the flashing of their fingers in the blue men's stream. But when the blast is raven and the wild tide races, the blue men are breast high with foam grey faces, and they'll plunge along with fury while they sweep the spray behind. Oh, they'll bellow o'er the billows and wail upon the wind, and if my boat be storm-tossed and beating for the bay, they'll be howling, they'll be growling, as they drench it with their spray. For they'd like to heal it o'er to their laughter when it lists, or crack the keel between them and stave it with their fists. Oh, weary on the blue men and their anger for the wiles, the whole day long, the whole night long, they're splashing round the aisles, 
They follow every fisher, ah, they'll taunt the fisher's dream when billows toss, oh, who would cross the blue men's stream? The blue men of the Minch were said to be entirely blue, not a hair on their bodies, and they would swim in the sea as if it was nothing to them. They could breathe underwater and not feel a thing, no problem at all. And they would dive into the water and they would spring up and they would capture ships and they would drag them down to the bottom of the sea and wreck them. And they didn't care about the human cost at all. In fact, some stories, the blue men of the Minch ate the people who were on the boat alive, and sometimes they just drowned them. So, so it was quite a, they were quite terrifying tales to be told. However, there was one way that you could outsmart them, and it's one of those tropes in Scottish folklore that you could outwit them with a clever rhyme. And here is a rhyme that a clever captain outwitted a blue man with. The blue chief spat. Man of the black cap, what do you say as your proud ship cleaves the brine? And the skipper said, my speedy ship takes the shortest way and I'll follow you line by line. The blue chief said, my men are eager, my men are ready to drag you below the waves. And the skipper said, my ship is speedy, my ship is steady. If it sank, it would wreck your cave. And never having been beaten in a rap battle before, the blue chief got very, very angry and screamed, blood-curdling scream. He got all his men together and then they dived back below the waves. And the skipper and his ship and his crew were allowed to proceed. There are a number of uh, fairy beings in Scottish folklore and folk tradition that are defeated in the same way, with a rap battle, with a poetry battle, glass sticks, brownies, different kinds of fairies, urisks, and the, the reason for that is probably because there's a tradition going right back to like the 12th century in Scotland of poetry battles, rap battles, and these were called flightings. And there's a very famous one where two poets go up against each other and they do just swear at each other, but in rhyme. But anyway, that's a story for another time. But it's interesting, to me anyway, how many different fairy types or how many different supernatural beings in Scottish folklore are defeated by these kind of uh, rhyming, rhyming battles. How interested they are in poetry. <laughs> One of the interesting historical things about the Blue Men stories is that, according to the written record, according to written history, in the ninth century, the Viking invaders, Scandinavian invaders, were bringing a huge amount of blue men, blue men, to Ireland and to the Hebrides, to Scotland from North Africa as slaves and using these blaumen in their Viking armies and using them to attack ships and things alongside the Vikings. And according to the 9th century annals, long were these blaumen in Ireland. There you go, make of that what you will. But it would be interesting to discover that some of these stories about the blue men of the Minch attacking ships 
uh, came from these Viking invaders who brought a slave army over. Make of that what you will. There's a lot of people who have written about it. I think there's a Dr. Caroline Green who's written quite extensively about it. So it's worth investigating. As I mentioned, Scottish fairies are associated with burial cairns. And so a lot of the stories are kind of about fairies travelling to and from, dancing around, kidnapping people, bringing them into the burial cairns. And the belief is that in this underground world, everything is good forever. It's beautiful all year round. And when the flowers die in winter above ground, they actually start growing below ground in fairyland. So goes the belief, traditionally. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that's all very well, Eileen, but surely the Bronze Age people, who had just freshly buried their dead in the burial cairns where the fairies were living, surely they weren't then immediately going away and telling stories about the fairy folk coming out of the hills again. Because that doesn't make any sense. So when did we start telling these fairy stories? Where did these fairy stories come from? And that would be a really good question. (laughs) So let's start with some weird history, shall we? Because some remains have been found in Scotland, all over Scotland, that have been mummified, they were definitely mummified before they were buried. So sometimes they've been buried at a much, much later date than the actual death of the person. So I think it's like one of the biggest stretches was about 80 years. Like this person had been mummified for 80 years and then buried. (laughs) So one of the current theories that's out there in anthropology and archaeology is that before Bronze Age, we would just lay, leave our dead in the house to mummify, as we would just treat them as if, you know, their presence was very much required still in the family, in the house, and they were still literally with us, and, you know, they were honoured, and they were, they were a part of our belief system at the time, keep them with you. And that's interesting, because some of those mummies I've mentioned who were mummified people and then they were buried much much later on when studies were done on them like DNA studies and things they discovered that these mummified people were actually not individuals at all they were made up of I think one of them was made up of up to nine individuals so at some point you know a leg had fallen off a hand had fallen off (laughs) and it just been replaced by another leg or another arm or whatever nine times and so the belief is that after it started to get a bit awkward or maybe it was a bit you know distracting having your dead mummified and in the house with you they started burying them and as a people people have started burying them in their house still so they're still in the house but this time in the floor of the house and then at some point that also gets a bit weird And instead of burying them in the house, they would bury them in burial cairns. So that's us up to Bronze Age. The changes in burial methods for people, whether or not they were left to mummify, whether or not they were buried, what direction they were buried in, and what they were buried with, hints at changes in 
a cultural belief system and a belief in an afterlife. This is especially when we start seeing people buried in specific directions or in specific positions and with objects that they would have been associated with in life and with food and with drink. All of that hints at a belief in an afterlife. And if there's a belief in the afterlife, then that must mean there's a belief that the soul and the spirit and the body are different somehow. And whether or not they use those terms, I couldn't tell you. But these practices hint at that and hint at that change. And if there's a belief that there is an afterlife and that the body is separated from the spirit or the soul, then surely the people would have been talking about, would have been telling stories about that. And if there was a journey involved in going to the afterlife from the spirit and the soul, then there must have been stories about those souls or those spirits deciding not to go to the afterlife or deciding to take revenge or something. It's a lot of conjecture. (laughs) But humans really haven't changed over the last however many thousand years. We still talk about the same things. So I think, I don't know, when we talk about Scottish fairies, getting back to fairies, (laughs) and away from mummified remains for a wee bit, if we're talking about spirits coming out of the underworld, then I think that is a belief that has been long held. And not just in our culture, but in many, many, many cultures. So I think that when we start seeing those changes in methods of burial and in how we treat our dead, I think that is roughly when there must have been stories starting to circulate about spirits coming back to either visit, to be vengeful, to be mischievous, to have adventures, well, I don't know, but something. And that's my opinion. (laughs) An alternative origin story for the fairies, if you're from the northeast of Scotland anyway, is that all the ones in Caithness and Sutherland were fathered by an Urisk. And this Urisk, which is sort of like a giant, but not quite as tall, quite hairy, and great big horns on his head, supernatural being, the Urisk, mostly from Perthshire. But this one, from the northeast of Scotland, is supposed to have fathered 12,000 fairy children. And like I say, that is specific. If you are from Caithness, your fairies are from this Urisk. <laughs> if you're from the south, they're from the Barrio Cairns. So it's probably not the first thing that you would have thought of uh, when you think of Scottish fairy stories or Scottish fairies, Bronze Age Scotland and methods of burial. However, it's the first thing that I think of because of that association that Scottish fairies have with the dead. And I think it's important to establish it. And now that I have, I want to tell you a Scottish fairy story. Three hundred years ago, there was an old farm labourer, and he was what was called an oraman, which means he did all the old jobs, ora jobs. 
And one day his boss sent him off to a piece of moorland to cut peats. And this piece of moorland was a kind of funny shape. And it ran up at one end to a place called Merlin's Crag. And it was called Merlin's Crag because the story goes that apparently one day Merlin decided to live there for a little bit. Well, I don't know for how long. Anyway, the other man obeyed and off he went. And he had taken quite a lot of peat from this bit of land when suddenly he was very aware of a small person, quite dainty, looking at him with her hands on her hips and looking with him with great anger. She was stamping her feet. And she was such a dainty little thing that the countryman stopped and he put a spade into the ground and just looked at her in wonder. And his wonder increased when she held up one of her tiny fingers and addressed him like this. What would you think if I were to send my husband to uncover your house? You think that you can do anything you like? And then she stamped her little foot and she added in a voice of command, Put that turf back instantly or you will rue this day. Now the poor Otter Man had heard of the fairy folk, the good folk, and of all the harm that they could work. So he was trembling a little bit and he started to undo all the work that he'd been doing. He started to put everything back. When he was finished, he looked around for this strange visitor, but she had vanished. And he couldn't tell where she had went or where. So he picked up his spade again and then he went his way homewards, having wasted an entire day. He told his boss what had happened and said that maybe that he should cut peat from somewhere else. But his boss just laughed. It was a big, strong laugh. He had no belief in fairies or ghosts or any of that caper. And he was not impressed that this man had just wasted a day's work. And he certainly wasn't going to pay him for it. And he said to him he should take the horse and cart and go back at once to where he had been and lift all the peats again and bring them to dry in the farmsteading. <sighs> well, what would you do? The poor Otterman obeyed and off he went and he'd found that even though he was working in the same spot, there was no visitor. The wee woman didn't arrive again and he began to think that, well, perhaps he had just dreamt it. And so, trundled back, stacked the peats, and winter passed in spring and summer. And then autumn came round, and the very day arrived in which the peats had been taken in the first place. And that day, as the sun went down, the Ottoman left the farm to go home to his cottage. And his boss was pleased with him because he'd been working very hard lately, and he'd given him a little can of milk as a present to carry home to his wife. So he was feeling pretty pleased with himself, he was pretty, pretty happy. And as he walked along, he was humming a little tune, and his road took him to the foot of Merlin's crag. And as he approached, he was astonished to find himself growing strangely tired. Oh, his eyelids were drooping over his eyes, and it was as if he was going to be asleep in just a minute, and his feet felt like lead. I'll just sit down and rest for a minute he said to himself. And so he sat down on a big tuft of grass and fell asleep. And when he woke up, it was nearly midnight and the moon had risen on the crag. And by the soft moonlight, 
he could see a large band of fairies were dancing around and around him and they were singing and laughing and pointing and shaking their wee fists in his face. And he was rather bewildered and he got up and he tried to walk away from them but whatever direction he turned in, they followed him and they encircled him in a magic ring dancing round and round and round and he could not leave. At last they stopped dancing and shrieking with laughter they grabbed the prettiest and daintiest of their company up to him and they cried, Tread a measure, tread a measure, oh man, and then wilt thou no longer be so eager to escape from our company. Now, poor Ottoman was not a good dancer. He was rather clumsy and he held back with a rather shamefaced air. But the fairy who'd been chosen to be his dance partner reached up, seized his hands and lo, some strange magic seemed to take place because for a moment he found himself waltzing and whirling and sliding and bowing as if he had done nothing but dance his whole life. And the strangest thing of all? Well, he forgot all about his home and his children and his wife. He felt so happy he had no longer the slightest desire to leave the fairy's company and all night long the merriment went on and the little folk danced and danced as if they were mad and the farman danced with them until suddenly the cock crew from across the farmyard and in an instant the revelry ceased and the fairies with cries of alarm crowded together and rushed towards the crag dragging the man along in their midst. As they reached the rock, a mysterious door, which he had never seen before in his life, opened, and then it shut again with a crash. The door led into a large, dimly lit hall, full of tiny couches, and here the little folk sank to rest, tired out with all their partying. And while the older man sat down on a piece of rock in the corner, he wondered what would happen next. But... There seemed to be some kind of spell thrown over his senses because when the fairies awoke and began to go about their household jobs and chores, he had never seen before or heard of before and he's forbidden to talk about it so I can't tell you about it. He was actually just happy to sit and watch them and he didn't even feel like saying anything. He's just intrigued really, watching them do their fairy chores, whatever they are, very secret. As it drew towards evening, somebody touched his elbow, and he turned round with a bit of a start to see the little woman he had seen a year ago. The divots you took from the roof of my house have grown again, she said, and once more all is covered with grass, so you can go home. Justice is satisfied, and your punishment has lasted long enough, but first you must take a solemn oath never to tell mortal ears what you have seen while you have been among us well he promised gladly and he took the oath and then the great big door was opened again and he left his can of milk was standing on the green just where he had left it and it seemed to him although was it yes it must have been it seemed to him as though it was only last night he had got it but when he reached his home, he was suddenly made clear of what had happened because his wife looked at him as if he was a ghost and the children, who he had left just tiny wee things, toddling around 
were now fully grown boys and girls, and they stared at him as if he had been a complete stranger. Where the hell have you been? said his wife. And she gathered her wits and realised that he wasn't actually a ghost. And, and what have you done? Why did you leave us? And then he understood that the one day that he had passed in Fairyland had lasted seven whole years. And he realised how heavy the punishment had been which the wee folk had laid upon him. do fairies live? Well that's an interesting question isn't it? Are they eternal? Are they because they are the spirit multitude that they live on forever and that they are immortal? In some stories yes. The traditional folk belief around fairies though is that they live through nine ages, that they have nine lives and whether or not this is the origins for cats having nine lives, well I'm not sure but it's interesting. Because the belief, traditional belief around fairies is that they have the following. Nine nines sucking the breast. Nine nines unsteady weak. Nine nines footful weak. Nine nines able strong. Nine nines strapping brown. Nine nines victorious subduing. Nine nines bonneted drab. Nine nines beardy grey. Nine nines on the breast beating death. And worse to me are those miserable nine than all the other short-lived nines that were. A folk belief surrounding Scottish fairies that dates to the 13th century is one where every seven years Scottish fairies have to give a sacrifice to the deal, to the devil. And that sacrifice can be fairy or it can be human. There is a choice. And that sort of tallies up with a lot of the Scottish stories where humans are kidnapped by the fairies for seven years or they have to escape after seven years. So that's where that belief comes from. So some of those stories must date to around the 13th century because of that. One of the most famous stories regarding Scottish fairies in history, in recent history, is the story of Reverend Robert Kirk, who in the 17th century was uh, a pastor, was working as a reverend, and he began to get really, really interested in traditional Scottish folk belief and folklore, and he found that his clergy had a really strong belief in the good folk, in fairies. And so he became really intrigued, and he would interview his clergy at length and find out all kinds of superstitions and beliefs and charms and ways of protecting yourself against the good folk and all their ways. And he began to get so interested in it that he kept doing walks up the fairy hill and he would listen to hear them. He would put his ear to the ground and see what he could hear. And that is how his body was found. It was on the hill, ear to the ground. Now, there is 
some belief around that from the time that he wasn't actually dead, but that his soul had been taken by the good folk and trapped in a tree. Now, and that tree still exists today, and people tie clutes to it and things. Whether or not that's true, well, I don't know. Was his soul taken by the good folk? I don't know. How do you prove such a thing? There's a lot of stories about him, and it's a really mysterious and interesting one. And he wrote down all of his notes. He wrote down absolutely everything that he learned from his clergy, from his own experiences, in a book, which he did not publish. It was published after he died, long after he died, by Walter Scott, in fact. Now, this is an intriguing story. However, it's not this story that I'm going to tell you. It's a different one, which is also very weird. On the 19th of November, 1929, a 33-year-old woman was found dead on the fairy hill of Iona. She lay on a cross she had carved herself in the earth beneath her, and in one hand she held a knife. Another knife lay nearby. Her long black cloak was found neatly folded beside her. There were strange marks on her toes that suggested she'd been running on her tiptoes over something very sharp, like stones. But what she was running from or who, no one could tell. Because although Iona is only three miles long and one mile wide, no one had seen or heard anything. Other than the cuts that were on her toes, there were no marks on her body and no signs of foul play, as they say. The coroner's report said she had died of exposure, logical conclusion given that it was the middle of winter and she wasn't wearing anything. However, the report leaves a lot unexplained. The lady they had found was called Marie Emily Fornario, although she went by the name of Netta, and she was half Italian, half English, and reportedly very intelligent. Netta was an occultist, a member of the occult organization Alpha e Omega Temple, which was the successor organization of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, famously founded by occultist Alistair Crowley. Netta had left her home in London and arrived in Iona only a few days before and she had been determined to contact the Green Ray Elemental Spirit, which is fairies to you and me. She felt on Iona there was some deep healing to be done. Netta arrived dressed in flowing clothes, typical of the arts and crafts movement, and although she hadn't booked anywhere to stay, she got off the ferry with enough furniture to furnish a small cottage. As luck would have it, a Mrs. Cameron had a spare room and made Netta welcome. According to Mrs. Cameron, Netta slept a huge amount and her pale complexion made her seem really ill. However, Netta let Mrs. Cameron know that it was through fasting that she'd become pale. And through this fasting and magic rituals, Netta had been given the gift of healing and often entered into trance-like states so that she could be at one with the universe and commune with the spirits. Netta advised Mrs Cameron that if she were ever to be found in such a trance, under no circumstances should Mrs Cameron call the doctor. She would be fine. She was communing with the universe. 
Now, Mrs. Cameron didn't ask any questions, just decided to let her keep to her own business. On Sunday, the 16th of November, Netta came out of her room in a panic. She told Mrs. Cameron she needed to leave the island immediately. Something or someone was trying to hurt her through psychic attack. She'd had all these strange visions, weird creatures, rudderless boats, a ship that crisscrossed the sky. Mrs. Cameron tried her best to calm her down and also tried to explain to her that the next ferry wasn't until the following morning, so she would have to wait. But Netta would not be placated and she insisted that Mrs. Cameron at least help her pack and prepare to leave, which she dutifully did. And then Netta stayed in her room just to wait for the ferry the following morning. Mrs. Cameron went about her day and then a few hours later, Netta was out again. She had changed her mind. Coming out of her room, she was going to say that everything was fine. She was going to stay after all. Mrs. Cameron noticed how tired and drawn Netta looked and her silver jewellery had turned black, ink black, completely tarnished. Something was not right about this woman. The following morning, Mrs. Cameron chapped at Netta's door, but she found Netta had gone. She was nowhere to be seen. All her belongings were still in the room, and all her clothes were very neatly folded and sat on the bed, a bed which did not look like it had been slept in. There was no note and no indication of where Netta might have gone. And when she didn't arrive in the afternoon, the search to find Netta began. All the locals were out trying to find her, and all the next day too. Finally, she was discovered in the early hours of the 19th of November, on the fairy hill, over a mile away from her lodgings, lying on the cross she had carved herself on the ground beneath her. The jewellery she was wearing, a silver cross around her neck, was entirely tarnished. It had turned ink black. Netta's friend and fellow occultist, Dion Fortune, had said when she was asked about Netta, Oh yes, I knew Miss Fenario intimately. She was especially interested in green ray elemental contacts too, much too interested in them for my peace of mind, and I was very nervous and I stopped contact with her. It appeared to me that she was going into very deep waters, even when I knew her, and that it was certain to be trouble sooner or later. And she had evidently been on an astral expedition from which she never returned. She was not a good subject for such expeditions. Dion also claimed to have seen the strange scratches on Netta's toes before on other people. She described them as being a response to psychic attacks from a very specific person, the former leader of the Alpha and Omega Temple. But this person, Moina Mears, had been dead for over a year, and so she could only have inflicted these scratches on Netta from beyond the grave. Countless writers and historians and people who are interested in the occult have tried to research and discover more about what happened to Netta on that night. However, very little else has been discovered about it, and we may never know all the answers. 
Why was her jewellery constantly turning black? Why had she brought so much furniture to the island? Why had no one seen anything? Why did she carve a cross on the ground? Was it because she was trying to contact the green ray elementals? Had she been hidden somewhere else and that's why nobody could find her for a few days? It's very hard to lose somebody on such a small island. Did nobody really say anything? Netta is buried in the graveyard on Iona, where the kings of Scotland are also buried. And I hope that she is at peace now, and perhaps the kings are offering her more protection than she received that faithful night on the fairy hill. So it's probably a good point in the podcast to start talking about Scottish folk traditions around protecting yourself from the good folk, from the fairies. So one of the things you can do is you can plant primroses underneath your windows, especially on the ground floor and around your door as well. Iron is a really good protective metal against the good folk and witches and fairies <laughs> and all kinds of goblins and spirits, according to Scottish folk tradition. So if you put something iron in your fireplace or in your window frame or in your door frame or maybe you want to keep a bit of iron around you, these things will all help. If a child has just been born, then there's a Scottish folk tradition where if you wrap the child in his father's shirt or her father's shirt, then that will protect the bairn from the fairies as well. And new mothers also, if you hang the father's trousers or the father's shirt over the end of the bed of the new mother, that will protect the new mother from the good folk, from the fairies. You can protect your cattle by tying red string and red ramen berries on their tails. <laughs> and you can also protect them through hagstones or mare stones, which are stones with a hole, a natural hole in the middle of them. You can hang them up in the briars and you can put them beside your bed at night. Another Scottish folk tradition around protecting yourself from the good folk from fairies was to give an offering of milk or oatmeal or both. And you could do that outside or you could leave it inside for them. Either way, if you gave them something and then they wouldn't trouble you, was the belief behind it. I was recently told of another belief where if you leave a glass of water somewhere for them, then they won't come and find you and give you trouble to try and find them something to drink. <laughs> well, researching some of the stories and some of the beliefs in this podcast that I'm sharing with you, I discovered all manner of eyewitness accounts in the Victorian era of seeing fairies, or being able to see fairies. It's people who had this special ability to see fairies. Being given the gift of second sight or supernatural vision by the fairies is something that comes up a lot in Scottish folklore. And there is a story that has changed over a long period of time and it's told differently in England and it's told differently in Wales and it's told differently in Scotland in various ways. And the idea behind it is that there is a salve that you can use on your eyes and that will allow you to see the fairies, the good folk, uh, or to see fairyland for what it is. And the original story, or one of the original stories, one of the earliest stories of that, is about a woman who is taken to be a wet nurse. 
to feed the fairies' children in fairyland. And she is shown a country whose fields were yellow with ripening corn, watered by looping burnies, small streams, and bordered by trees laden with fruit. And this wet nurse was presented with webs of the finest cloths and boxes of precious ointments. And the fairy then moistened her right eye with a green fluid and made the wet nurse look. And she looked, and she saw several of her friends and acquaintances working, reaping the corn, gathering the fruit. This, said the fairy, is the punishment of evil deeds. And then she passed her hand over the woman's eye again and restored it to its natural power. The fairy led her to the porch from which she had entered and dismissed her, thanked her for all she had done. But the woman had secured the wonderful green liquid, and from this time she was able to discern the fairy people as they went about in invisibility, until one day when she happened to meet the fairy lady who had brought her to fairyland to be the wet nurse, and she attempted to shake hands with her. What eye do you see me wee? said the fairy woman. With them base, said the woman, with both. And the fairy breathed on the woman's eyes, and the salve lost its efficacy. And no more could the wet nurse see the fairies with their supernatural powers. Now this story changed over time to being the good folk of the fairies who find out that she has this ability, they poke her eyes out, or they burn her eye, or they leave it blinded. But in the oldest story, they just take the ability away. They just take the self back. So maybe our fairies have got worse over time. Maybe they're less patient with us now. Regardless, if you get offered something and you're no sure about it, just say no. I thought I would finish this week's episode of the Scottish Folk Podcast with a fairy lullaby translated from the Gaelic. It's very short, but it's very pretty. On milk of deer I was reared. On milk of deer I was nurtured. On milk of deer beneath the ridge of storms. On crest of hill and mountain. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Scottish Folk Podcast. And if you did, please tell your friends, share it, leave a review. You can find me on Instagram. I am at Eileen Budd. If you would like to support the work that I'm doing with the Travelling Folk Museum, you could buy me a coffee. The link to that is in my bio in my Instagram profile. Special thanks this week goes to Carrie, Carol, Margaret, Lizzie, and Sarah, thank you so much for supporting my work. It's massively appreciated. And thank you to everybody who shares the work here that I do and also on Instagram as well. It's just, it helps so much. Oh, you know what the algorithms are like. They're always against us, aren't they? Right, that's it for this week. Hey, Brian.